Good morning. We haven't met yet. My name is Dustin, and uh, so glad you guys have chosen to join us this morning. Kids, if you're going downstairs, kids ministry for five years old through fifth grade, and so you can head downstairs right now back there in the hall, um, our uh, stairs and leaders will meet you back there. Uh, we also have nursery for uh, about zero to four years old in the back of the hall back there by the door you probably came in and so parents feel free to utilize the kids ministry and the nursery as you need to go ahead and grab some scripture we're going to be in first john we have just started a series so uh, if you want to grab some scripture we've got a hard copy around you and you can also uh, look at uh, the Bible app. You can scan the QR code on the screen. We're just a couple of weeks in on our series on the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, we started 1st John last week, and so this is the second week in 1st John after doing an intro week on the life of John. And uh, if you uh, can't find it in your scriptures, all the way back close to Revelation is 1st John. You may remember from last week when Adam introed really the content that we're looking at in this series, uh, that there's a pattern that John keeps circling back through. Uh, first being foundational doctrine, and we made some circles on the screen if you want to throw those circles up. Uh, first being foundational doctrine, uh, the second being focused on obedience and the living a life of obedience, and the third being impassioned encouragement. And he circles back through these three uh, themes, so to speak, uh, several times in the letter. And so this morning is foundational doctrine. This morning's passage predominantly falls under foundational doctrine. And so we should be ready to digest some deep truths this morning about who God is and who we are. John begins this section of verses with a major theological statement. And so 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 is where we'll start. This theological statement here that John makes as the basis for what he's about to say. You can follow along with me. This is the message we have heard from him, that's Christ, and proclaim to you. So right away, we know this is a message. We know it's a message of good news, and we know that it came from Christ, and John is passing along to us what he received from Christ. And then we get this statement, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That's how verse 5 reads. And so God is what? Say it with me. Light, and in him there is no what? darkness at all. Not even a shadow, right? No darkness at all. Even in this room, it's lit up, but there's some darkness. There are places where it's darker. Under the seat of your chair is darker. Back there in the back, it's a little lighter. Back here behind the stage, it's darker. Even a room that's lit up, there's still a little bit of darkness, but God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. And if we can pause for just a moment, can we Agree that when we look at God as light and we understand that in him there is no darkness, can we just agree that that's not us, right? Can we just agree that that's not the way that we function, that that's not our reality? 
that none of us could come this morning and say, hey, I got up, I, I put some clothes on, I tried to look nice, and I came in here, and I just want everybody to know I'm all light. And in me, there is no darkness. Can we just agree that's not the case with us, that we're different from God himself? We get impatient and angry in traffic. At least you do. I never do. <laughs> Can we agree that we're a bigger deal than what we actually are? We, we think we're a bigger deal than we actually are. We all wrestle with that at some point, right? We think we're a bigger deal than we actually are, and we hate it when others don't realize what a big deal we are. Who are they to cut in front of me? Who are they to say that to me? Who are they to talk to me like that? And if that's not enough, we think horrid things that if they were made public on the screen behind us, we'd crawl under our chair, right? Or run out of the building in humiliation. God is light. And in him there is no darkness, and that's different from us. So here's the question. If God is light and we inherently struggle with darkness, what would it look like for us to walk in him or walk in his light? What would that look like for us to walk in the light that he is? If he is this perfect light and no darkness, and that's not who we are, what would it look like for us as we wrestle with darkness to walk in the light that is him? And as I began to process that the last week or two, the image that came to mind was a lantern, and uh, I haven't used uh, a good prop with you guys in a while, so I thought I'd bring a prop this morning, and so I brought with me, you might have guessed it. Lantern. And uh, anybody used a propane lantern like this before? They're pretty awesome. We don't use lanterns a whole lot uh, with the invention of flashlights. Adam and I were just talking about it uh, today that when you are trying to see something with a lantern and you hold, if you've ever done this in the dark, you hold it up uh, for yourself, all you see is the bright light of the lantern in front of you. But I felt like a uh, a crotchety old man this morning as I was walking around with this lantern, like, who's out there? <laughs> but this lantern, if you can imagine, you're out in the dark stumbling around, and it's pitch black. It's one of those nights where there's no moon, and, and you're stumbling around, your flashlight went out or whatever, and I don't know why you're walking around the woods at night anyway, <laughs> but maybe you're hunting, all right? Maybe you're, no, you wouldn't be hunting at night. <laughs> the analogy's falling apart quick here. But just say that you're walking around in the darkness and you're trying to find your way and in the distance you see this coming towards you. Probably freak you out a little bit at first, but as it got closer, you'd realize there's a guy and he's carrying a light. He has light and I'm in the darkness and this visual for what it looks like to walk in his light is, is what it would look like for you to come alongside of the one that's holding the light and all of a sudden you're walking in the orb of the light that this lantern is putting off. 
because you were stumbling in the darkness, and then God is light, perfect light and no darkness, and you want to get in his orb of light, so to speak. I'm going to go ahead and turn this off before something catches fire, and then you remember this sermon forever. (laughs) This is John's hope with this section of Scripture, that he can give his readers a better understanding of what it looks like to walk in God's light versus stumbling in the darkness. So in that, John's going to use several if statements and scenarios in this passage as we continue to read here in a second. Several if statements, if this, if then. And he has a lot to say about sin, which isn't a very popular word or message in today's culture. And and really, even in some churches, not real popular to talk about sin these days. And as we read, I would encourage you to think bigger than just this. Because maybe you've read this passage and you have thought, well, being in the light is having no sin, and, and if you sin, then all of a sudden you're in the darkness. Think bigger than that. There's definitely some elements of that that are true, but there's more here to walking in the light than that. Verses 6 and 7. Let's read together. John will begin to unpack this analogy of walking in light versus walking in darkness. And so here's what he says in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's a big sentence right there, right? That's, that's a lot of truth, and it's pretty heavy. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, not just with him, but with one another, it says. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. When we think about what it looks like to walk in the light, it's being under the blood of Christ. It's under the forgiveness that he offers. That's what being in the light is. See, darkness is a place of no fellowship with him. While being in the light means we have fellowship with him and other believers, and most importantly, we're under the cleansing blood of Christ. That's what it looks like to walk in the light. What does it look like to walk in the light? Well, if we're in the light, it means that we've experienced the cleansing blood of Christ's salvation. That's what the scripture says. Unless we begin to think that walking in the light means we perpetually have no sin, Lest we begin to go down that path where it's like, well, okay, to be in the light, I have to be in the place where I never sin anymore, ever. Or maybe you have the belief that if you just walk with Jesus long enough, if you just show up here enough Sundays in a row, then maybe you'll eventually stop sinning altogether. If that's where your brain begins to go, John has a correction for us here. Let's look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So he's recognizing that if we deny the fact that we have sin, then there's no truth in us. And in verse 9, some of your translations start, but if, ESV says, if we confess 
our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse, love that word, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so can we say this about walking in the light? If we're trying to get to the bottom, what does it look like to walk in the light? What does it mean to walk in the light? Can we say this about walking in the light? Recognizing our sin and need for cleansing is a crucial piece to walking in the light. Recognizing our sin and our need for cleansing is a crucial piece to walking in the light. What do people do who are in the light? They confess their sins and they recognize their need for cleansing from Christ. That's what people in the light do. Turn to Proverbs chapter 28. If you're in the hard copy, pretty much right in the middle of the scriptures, gives us some good insight as to what it looks like to confess our sins versus keeping them in the darkness. What it looks like to bring our sin to light versus keeping it in the corner of the room or shoved under the bed, so to speak. Proverbs 28, verse 13 says this, whoever conceals, and that word conceals, it has heavy implication to mean keep in the darkness, right? That's what concealing is, keeping it hidden, keeping it in the darkness. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. With regard to hiding our sin or not seeing the sin within us, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says this, and he uses this analogy. I'm going to say it a couple times. It was striking to me this week. He who cannot find water in the sea, so picture that, someone that can't find water in the middle of the sea, he who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his own heart. He who cannot find water in the sea is not more foolish than the man who cannot perceive sin in his own heart. So what does walking in the light look like? It looks like regular and honest confession of our sin before him. Now John's going to elaborate a little more on the avoidance or denial of sin. I think we can all identify with this. Look what John says. Uh, flip back to verse 10, 1 John 1, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What does that mean? What does it mean when we deny our sin or refuse to recognize it that we call God a liar? What, what does that mean? mean? Well, simply put, God has said we are sinners in need of a Savior. So if we deny our sin, we're denying our need for a Savior, which attempts to make him out to be a liar. Example, we have up here what we call mud seasons, right? And just picture, picture it's May. It's the time that everybody tries to get out of town for, for a while. Picture that it's May and it's a first grade class over here at Fraser Valley Elementary. And let's just say, I'm sure this is really a rule, but I'm just making this up at this point. But let's just say that there's a rule that when kids come in from recess after lunch, their hands must be washed. 
reasonable, right? Especially considering mud season, they're out playing. The teachers have the expectation that the kids' hands will be washed when they come in from recess. And just picture one child comes up just completely randomly. We'll call him Brayden. He <laughs> made up story. And Brayden comes up and his hands are just covered in mud. And the teacher says, all children must have their hands washed before they come inside. And Brayden says, my hands are clean. My hands are not dirty. And the teacher says, what? Yes, they are. Yes, they are dirty. And Brayden draws a line in the sand and says, no, they're clean. They're not muddy. In, in that instance, he's making his teacher out to be a liar, right? He's saying that what she's saying is actually not true, and his hands are clean. Denial of our sin. Denial of our muddy hands, so to speak. Well, I got to think, well, how do we do this? Like, that's a cute little analogy, but how do we do this in our own lives today as students or as adults? How do we deny our sin or essentially say, I'm not guilty? I'm not muddy. We'll see if this sounds anything like us. Number one, we rationalize our sin. We rationalize our sin and the sins of others. We say things like, well, I only acted that way because she did that to me first. Rationalization, right? Or I have to abuse this substance now because of what they did to me in the past. Rationalization, right? It's just my escape. It's what I need because of what happened there. And instead of confession we rationalize our sins and the sins of others. We walk in this sin because of something someone else did. Rationalization. Maybe number two is true for you. We minimize our sin and the sins of others. It's different than rationalization. We minimize our sin and the sins of others. We say things like, well, this is just a little sin. Have you said that before? If you're older than about eight, surely, and maybe even true if you're younger than eight this is just not that big of a deal. We minimize our sin. Hey, I can think of a lot worse sins than what I'm walking in here. It's not hurting anybody. We've said that before. And instead of confession, we minimize our sins and the sins of others. Or maybe three, maybe for you, it's just flat out ignoring or denying our sin like John just spoke of in verse 10. When we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we try to ignore His voice. It's not so much that we rationalize our sin, that we've thought it out and, and rationalized or minimized, but it's ignoring or putting off or denying our sin. We choose to ignore the grievousness of it. It's like, have you ever been sitting in your living room? Maybe watching a football game like this afternoon or yesterday and you hear an unexpected <laughs> knock at your door and you do this. 
wonder if they saw me. And you ignore, and you ignore the knock. Maybe that's a little bit of a picture of what it's like with your sin. You're ignoring or denying or maybe it's like ghosting someone on your phone that you just don't feel like talking to in the moment or texting back. It's ignoring. It's denying. So instead of confession, we ignore or deny our sins and the sins of others. Denial of our sin is such a heinous act because if we really think we have no sin, and I don't think we would consciously, we don't often consciously process that, but it's what's going on inside. When we really think we have no sin, we really have no need for a Savior, and of course it makes God out to be a liar, just like John talked about. Let's continue here. This goes into chapter 2 here. So to end this section of Scripture will be in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 2. And we get some more foundational doctrine here that points to not only the inevitability of our sin, which we've already seen, but also God's solution to our sin, right? And that's where we really get to. It wouldn't be much of a sermon if we just talked about how sinful and broken we are, and then we said amen, and hey, let's try to sing a song in our misery and wander out the door. We get more foundational doctrine about God's solution to our sin, which is Jesus the Christ. And so let's read here, chapter 2, verse 1. John says, my little children, it's an endearing term, not necessarily that he's writing only to children, but it's an endearing term to those that are under his care. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And it would still be pretty discouraging if that's where he stopped. Hey, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. Hey, good luck. I'll write you another letter next month. But he continues. But if anyone does sin, then I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, there's provision there, right? But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Well, who is this advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perfect one, right? We have an advocate. The word in the original language is paraclete, and it's used five times in the New Testament um, altogether. Four other times, John, I think they're all by John in his gospel, And all four of the other times that this word advocate is used, it's in reference to the Holy Spirit. You may remember John in his gospel talking about the advocate in the Holy Spirit. But this time, this one time of the five, it's referring to Jesus as the advocate. And it's awesome that this same word is used to describe Jesus and the Holy Spirit. See, referring to Jesus as our advocate, it's really this idea of a helper And so, referring to Jesus as our advocate or as our helper, well, how does he help us? Number one, he is the cleanser of our sin in verse 7 we just read. How does he help us? He's the cleanser of our sin. Well, how else does he help us? How else is he an advocate? Well, he's the forgiver of our sin, verse 9. We already looked at that. And then here, he's the helper when we do sin. Our advocate, Jesus. We have an advocate, a helper present in us through the Spirit, and an advocate, a helper in heaven in Christ. 
amazing. See, church, when we sin, we have help in the form of Christ. He's our helper. And I need to say that again because I think that's the truth that there, there are ones of us today, all of us need to hear it, but there are ones specifically that it'll be more weighty for. When we sin, we have help in the form of Christ. He's our helper, our advocate. And so what does that mean? Well, it means if you find yourself in a pattern of sin or if you're experiencing some unconfessed sin this morning, you're not on your own as the enemy wants you to believe. This was incredible for me this week. Because when we get into patterns of sin or we get into unconfessed sin, the enemy wants, wants us to believe we're all alone in that. That number one, no one else struggles the way you do. And then two, that you're all alone. And that's just not true. And so if you're in that pattern and you believe that you're all alone, then you specifically need to hear, you have a helper. You have one who desires to help, an advocate. It's the picture, if you can imagine, you find yourself in a courtroom and there are some crazy charges being leveled against you and you don't know what to do and the lawyer hasn't shown up yet and you're like I don't I don't know I'm gonna have to plead guilty here and, and face the consequences and then all of a sudden the star lawyer walks in as your advocate your helper and that advocate that lawyer that helper He's not going to try to argue your innocence. He's actually going to take your guilt, which is this crazy turn of events, which is where it goes in the next verse. And so let's continue to read verse 2 here. He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. We'll come back to that. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the what? What does it say? The whole world. This word propitiation, we talk about it now and then when it comes up in the scriptures. Propitiation is an atonement for our sins. The word carries the idea of satisfaction. Here's what that means. The punishment that was due us for our sin was absorbed by Christ. He was our propitiation, our atonement. Jesus in our place. We earned a death sentence because of our sin, but Christ stepped in as the atonement. That's what we call substitutionary atonement, Jesus in our place. And if you're like, I'm still not sure I get this, those are big words, I don't, I don't understand, propitiation, atonement, think of it this way, Jesus substituted in our place, absorbing God's wrath to pay the debt we could never pay. And as we get down here to the bottom, maybe you're like, okay, okay, I'm hearing that, but where's the application? What, what is there for me in that today? One, if you've never accepted what Christ has done for you, say maybe today's your day. If you've never accepted what Christ has done for you, that he is, 
your substitutionary sacrifice, that he took what you deserved and then gave you his life. Maybe for the first time you confess your sin and your great need for Christ and experience your justification, your being made right by his shed blood. Two, maybe you're already his child. But maybe you've been in a pattern of rationalizing or minimizing or denying or maybe all three, right? Those who are in the light make confession a regular practice. Maybe you confess your sin and know that he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness as we just read. There's a quote This is especially for those of you who are already followers of Christ, already believers, already his child. Quote by John Stott that I'm going to put on the screen. It was really meaningful for me this week. It says this. Once the sinner has been justified by God his judge, once he's been made right by God his judge, he has entered the family of God and become related to God as his father. If he should sin, he does not need another justification from the divine judge. He is a child of God. He needs the Father's forgiveness. This is assured to him through the advocacy, the help of Jesus, the righteous one, as we just read. I trust the Spirit is speaking through the word this morning as we've spent time just reading through these scriptures about what walking in the light looks like. See, there are too many sins for me to stand up here and go, maybe this is yours, maybe this is yours, maybe this one, maybe this one, and that would go on for hours, right? It's too big of a list to get bogged down on, but the solution isn't a list. The solution is singular and simple. It's confession of your sin and recognition of your great need for Christ today. We're going to go into a time of confession where you spend some time processing some of the truths that we've seen and and let them sink into a deep place. We don't pause very often in our culture We so quickly move on to the next thing, even in settings like this, but we're going to take some time and pause before him and let you process the truth of the scriptures this morning. Maybe you rest in the forgiveness that he offers through his shed blood on your behalf. Maybe you rest in the fact that he came out of the grave. Maybe you rest in the fact that the cross is big enough for whatever sin you've been rationalizing or minimizing or denying. His forgiveness is enough. His mercy is more as we sing often here. Let's go to him in some confession.
Lord, we not only confess our sin, but we confess the truths that we've read, that when we confess, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and We thank you for the truths in your word about what it looks like to walk in the light. It looks like acknowledging our great need for you. It looks like being under Jesus, your cleansing blood. We confess that that's where we desire to be is underneath that truth, in that light. Acknowledging and confessing our sin. And the very next breath, celebrating who you are and what you've done, Jesus. The freedom that comes by your body broken and your blood shed for us. The fact that we don't have to come here week after week looking for justification. Lord, that that's been settled if we're believers, that... We've been called your son and daughter for eternity. But yet we find ourselves continuing to struggle with sin. Continuing to wrestle with the old person. The old me. Lord, I pray that by your spirit we would walk in the light. We'd walk as one who is in need of your forgiveness who's in need of cleansing, even as your child. Lord, we confess that we struggle. We confess that we need you. And we lean, holy Jesus, on your finished work on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we sing and maybe continue to confess or celebrate or all the above together, Lord, I pray that your spirit would continue to minister to us in a, in a deep and meaningful way. We love you and we pray these things in your name. Amen. Hey, while we uh, sing, we're going to have a closing song, opportunity to worship him in song. Communion's in the back, the bread and the cup. And so I encourage you to celebrate Jesus in your place. Jesus' blood for the forgiveness of our sins. You can go back at any point while we're singing, bring the bread and the cup back to your chair and eat and drink as you're ready, as you sing and as you celebrate and as you confess. Let's stand together.